grateful that you've chosen to be with us this morning, brother. If you'll come on up and please welcome Justin Gibbon you this morning. And brother, I'm going to pray for you before you begin. Thank you so much, man, for choosing to be with us. Let's pray, friends. Lord, we thank you so much for Justin. We thank you for the ministry that he continues uh, to provide in the ways that he serves our communities, in the ways that he endeavors to teach us what it means to engage in the politosphere truly with compassion, truly with convic- conviction, being faithful to our call to be biblical in all that we do. And Lord, as he comes to speak to us, I do pray that you would grant us open ears and soft hearts to receive all that you've sent him by to share with us. Give him clarity in his sharing and communication. And Holy Spirit, I pray that every word that he speaks would go forth and would accomplish all that you've sent to accomplish in every heart and mind present. We thank you, Father. Bless him in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I thank my uh, former classmate for that uh, introduction. Um, Let me say this. Well, first of all, good morning, Redeemer. Uh, I am honored to stand here before you. In all honesty, I do want to thank Pastor Leon. I know Pastor Drew is not here, but thank them as well. I don't take it lightly to have the opportunity to uh, stand behind what we would call the sacred desk and deliver God's word uh, for you today. So thank you for having me. Thank you for all this church does in the community and just the example that it is that it is set uh, for uh, the West Side. So thank you. Um, I just pray today, you know, these moments are always bigger than us. And so I pray that God give me the ability to speak the gospel simple, full and free. Uh, But thank you all for being here. And if you if you don't mind, uh, I'd have you stand for the reading of the scripture, if you don't mind. That's what we do in my tradition coming from the Baptist church. Um, Before we do that, as you're standing, I do want to recognize my beautiful wife, Summer, uh, my parents, uh, Ronald and Susan Gibney, my my sons. I want to thank them for coming out. Today's word comes from Acts 5, verses 29 through 39. Acts 5, verses 29 through 39, and it reads, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him uh, uh, to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered them and ordered that the men be put aside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I'd advise you, leave these men Alone. 
Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. And you only find yourselves fighting against God. You may be seated. Fighting against God. I would like to tag this text, deliver the message, receive the message. Deliver the message, receive the message. In 1899, writer and philosopher Elbert Hubbard wrote the essay, A Message to Garcia. He wrote it randomly after dinner in a single hour. Well, that essay would eventually be distributed all over the world and printed and translated in 37 languages. The book was meant to inspire initiative and dedicated service. Russia would give uh, Russia would give it to every railroad employee and every Russian soldier on the front lines of the Russo-Japanese War. The Japanese would find the booklets on Russian prisoners of war translate it, and give it to everyone who was employed by their government. In one version, the preface quotes Proverbs 25:13, As the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him, for he refresheth the soul of his masters. The essay was about a diligent and conscientious messenger named Rowan. The setting is in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. The dilemma was that the president urgently had to get a message to a man named Garcia, who was the leader of the insurgents. He was someone who was uh, located somewhere in the mountains of Cuba, but they didn't know exactly where. Someone said to the president, Rowan can find Garcia if anyone can. So it is Rowan who gets uh, asked to deliver the message to Garcia. The book says that he took the letter, sealed it up in an oilskin pouch, and strapped it to his heart. He landed by night off the coast of Cuba and disappeared into the jungle. In three weeks, he came out on the other side of the island, having traversed a hostile country on foot and having delivered the message to Garcia. By design, that is really all we know about his journey. Conspicuously, the author does not get into details about how he got the job done or how hard the job was. And that's because it was beside the point. The moral of the story is when you've been given an order, don't be inattentive, indifferent, or half-hearted. Be diligent, loyal, determined, courageous. Do the thing. Deliver the message. Now, over the years, this book has been used for aspirational reasons and nefarious reasons. I wouldn't advise you to espouse the author's life philosophy, but I do think that there's something that we can learn from Rowan. 
as Christians, we've been given an order, a great commission. And we must deliver the message even when it means transversing through hostile territory. You should keep in mind that Rowan wouldn't have fulfilled the president's order if he had been afraid or if he was trying to insert his own agenda into the mission. Deliver the message. Deliver the good news. Now, by Acts 5, Jesus has been crucified, buried, and resurrected. The church has received the Holy Spirit, and the religious establishment thought they had gotten rid of their problem. But through this turn of events and the testimony thereof, their problem has reemerged. And as a consequence, they are considering putting the apostles to death. In the previous chapter, Peter had healed the lame beggar, and now the streets are talking. And what's interesting is as Peter is doing things that mesmerize the people, he's also reminding them that you killed the author of life. Don't forget, guys, that you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer, Barabbas, be released instead of the Messiah. This isn't an exercise in flattery. He is not pandering to them to get them on his side. This is not a message that's all about rainbows and butterflies. The religious establishment was greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In today's message, the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin, a religious council with uh, some judicial and some political functions. And they're brought before them for the second time. They're interrogated by the, by the high priest who says, we have ordered you not to preach in the name of Jesus, yet your teachings are all over Jerusalem and you accuse us of the crucifixion. The Sanhedrin is addressing the disciples as if the disciples don't understand the council's authority or the council's demand. But the disciples seem to be replying that, no, we heard you twice the first time. However, we have an obligation to obey God rather than human beings. This apparently is an unconditional imperative. It's something that they're bound to do as a provision of the new covenant. And therein lies the conflict. Moral obligation versus the mandates of human authority. We all know that we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, meaning that we give human authority what's in its jurisdiction. But this is a word that supersedes human rule. The disciples identify themselves as witnesses. The witness or the martus is one who sees, experiences, or knows something that others need to hear. The light in the darkness, the salt to the rot and infection surrounding them. It's important to understand that they are not the source of the message, 
nor are they the power behind the message. They are simply the witnesses delivering the message. They're not delivering their truth. They're delivering the truth. They're not opining, editorializing, or candy-coating the message for polite society. That would be in violation of their calling. They might sprinkle a little seasoning salt on their words, but but there ought not be any high-glucose additives that would dilute or distort the word of God. You crucified Jesus. But in addition to that accusation, Peter also provides a short sermonette on the gospel. Repentance, forgiveness of sin, and salvation. How about that? A biting critique coupled with a path to eternal life. In other words, I know what you did last spring, but I also know a Savior who can wash the blood from your hands. That's what you call good news. They cannot, under any circumstances, keep this information or the related truths and principles to themselves. That would be a most loveless and faithless thing to do. And church, we must see that the primary message here is this. In concert with the Holy Spirit, God's people must bear witness to what Jesus accomplished, who he is, and what he stands for, notwithstanding the consequences. Their lives were on the line. They had already seen what these people had done to Jesus. They knew that the consequences were serious. These were not just idle threats. But the Great Commission and the Great Commandment demanded nothing less than delivering the message. We cannot keep God's love, God's truth, or his design to ourselves. For us, this proclaiming in the name of Jesus thing is unavoidable. It's unavoidable even if we run the risk of being misunderstood. Even if we run the risk of being outcasted or persecuted, deliver the message. I want you to note that the apostles are not going around stating their own not-so-humble opinions with a false sense of authority. They're not making these piercing proclamations simply on their own volition. They are witnessing in obedience to God and in league with the Holy Spirit. Peter was boldly setting the record straight. And the Bible seems to indicate that he was doing so faithfully, which means he was speaking the truth in love not in self-righteousness. I mean, let's think about it. He couldn't have been calling out Israel as a display of his own righteousness because we know that he himself had been less less than faithful to Jesus right before the period of the crucifixion. Peter had denied Jesus three times. 
he had nothing to boast about. He could speak in the name of Jesus as a witness to God's righteousness, but he could not speak in his own righteousness. And in our imperfection, in our brokenness, if we have a word for society, it better be spoken from a place of compassion and humility. Lest we make ourselves hypocrites. We all have an obligation to speak inconvenient truths. But sadly, we have some Christians that like to be offensive. That like to be abrasive. That like to be hurtful. They like being adversarial. They like raining on the parades of others and bursting their bubbles. They turn good news into bitter fruit. Understand that two people could be saying the same thing, but the spirit and the purpose of the message could render one faithful and the other unfaithful. They could be saying the same thing, yet one is meant to edify the hearer and the other is meant to exalt the messenger. So I would suggest that instead of telling our hateful or our sexually immoral neighbor, you should be more like me, we should be saying, let us both take our brokenness to the cross and venture to be more like him. The spirit of the message matters. How you deliver the message matters. Who you're exalting in your message matters. Now, before the Sanhedrin moves forward with their plan to kill the apostles, Gamaliel takes the floor. Gamaliel is a renowned teacher of the law. In fact, it's said that he was Apostle Paul's instructor, a man who was highly esteemed uh, among all the people, the entire Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, stands up and weighs in on this matter. And if you read closely, you'll see that he creates a tension. You'll see that he says something that should make us all stop and think. He says, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. And when I thought about it, I I, I recognized that it exposes that to some extent the religious establishment thought they were right. If they perceived the apostles to be false witnesses, they were treating them as such. But they had been terribly wrong about Jesus, and they were terribly wrong now. We know their reactions fulfilled scripture. We know that. But the question remains, have they really considered carefully and prayerfully? And if not, why not? This might be instructive to us. Had their judicial decisions become routine and formulaic instead of being produced by deliberate dependence on God? 
Were they reacting based on rote or habitual tendencies instead of discerning with the fear of God in their hearts? Had they fallen into some pattern of cursory judgment where they were taking shortcuts and leaning on their own own understanding as if their judgment and God's judgment were interchangeable? Were they still under the influence of the same mob mentality that had bewitched them since Jesus hit the scene? Consider carefully, Gamaliel says. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about Gamaliel, so I won't uh, speculate as to his intentions. But he does seem to appeal to sobriety in a moment of groupthink and causes them to reconsider. Now, you might be thinking, why does this matter? This sermon is about delivering the message. That's true. But while we are messengers of the good news, through sanctification, we never stop receiving the message of the good news either. Meaning there are messages that we need to hear too. To grow in Christ, to correct our misconceptions, to see God's character and his work more clearly. As Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. We must be careful not to fall into the same rut as the Pharisees. And I know we tend to interpret scripture from the perspective of the good guys, but it might help us today to step into the shoes of the Pharisees. Do we carefully consider our opinions and responses to others? I would say that it's unwise to think that we aren't susceptible to a similar blindness and hard-heartedness that we saw with the Pharisees. Do we get carried away by the spirit of the moment? Do we get swept up by cultural affinities and partisan biases? You see, the fact that you are in this church today and that you have good intentions doesn't mean that in some aspect of your life you might not find yourself fighting against God. In fact, we have historical precedent for that. The American church, when they chose to reject the words of the abolitionists was fighting against God. The mainline church, when it chose to listen to the speculation of German theologians and get away from the authority of Scripture, was fighting against God. We are susceptible to be doing the same. Again, do we get carried away by the spirit of the moment? Do we get swept up by ideology and partisan biases? Do we presume certain people are wrong based on their identity, based on their ideology, based on their profile or their social location? 
Do we summarily dismiss them when they may very well have a word for us? Do we presume people are wrong simply because they're in opposition to us? Which doesn't mean that they're in opposition to God. Do we reject people simply because we can't handle getting called out? If you think it would be easy for someone to say you killed the Messiah and that you would just throw your hands up and admit it, I don't know that it would be that easy for you. And when people from other cultures and other parties and other ideologies make certain accusations, do we summarily dismiss it or do we consider carefully? Do we consider carefully? Here's another one. Do we presume that people are wrong on everything because they're wrong on something that's important to us? You get race wrong, therefore you're wrong on the authority of Scripture. You get abortion wrong, therefore you're wrong on social justice. But what I would like you to understand is that under that standard, none of us qualify as witnesses. And neither neither did Peter. It's never about our merits. That is not what qualifies us to be witnesses. It's about whether or not we're leaning, relying on the Holy Spirit, whether or not we're leaning and relying on the word of God. Now, I want to be very clear. Some people use this passage to suggest that the Holy Spirit might lead us in a different direction than Scripture. They try to say that the Holy Spirit might come in and actually change doctrine, that somehow the Bible would now be about self-indulgence rather than being about self-sacrifice. And I want to be very clear, the Bible and the Holy Spirit do not go in different directions. Do not let anybody tell you that now in this modern age, the Spirit is telling us that we need to do something different doctrinally. That's not what this means. If they tell you that, they need to test that Spirit. And I promise you, it is not the Holy Spirit. When we spread the word of God or hear it from others, we must do so in reliance on the word and the Holy Spirit. In prayer, meditating on the word, and in communion with sincerity, passion, and humility. Gamaliel says, consider carefully, because if their movement is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. How do we avoid being the position where we're fighting against God, where we know what messages to receive? Again, they're in league with the Holy Spirit. They're leaning on God and his character, not on their own understanding. Our pride, our culture, Our intellectual understandings and the limits thereof are not enough to put us in a position where we won't be fighting against God. It's a reliance. You have to understand that there are different ways to be a false witness. The first way that we usually think of of being a false witness is being deceitful. 
purposefully deceiving people. But if we go back to uh, Acts 3, Apostle Paul, when he says that they killed Jesus, he said that you did it in ignorance, as did your leader. Which means you can have good intentions and be ignorant of the truth and do wrong. They thought the apostles were false witnesses, but they were false witnesses. Someone can be just as sincere and be a false witness as someone who is a truthful witness. The difference is not their education. The difference is not uh, what uh, party they're in. The difference is not who they grew up around or what church they're in. The difference is the reliance on God and the reliance on the Holy Spirit. Deliver the message. And God have mercy on our souls if we allow, if we try to insert progressive ideology or conservative ideology into the message. It's not what God has called us to do. So I leave you by saying this. The people in the church today who are trying to prevent a redemptive uh, understanding and concept of of justice from entering the church are fighting against God. The people today who are trying to take the authority of scripture out of church are fighting against God. And each one of us has an obligation to proclaim the name of Jesus no matter what the consequences. God bless you.